everyone to Soundtrack Showdown, the monthly podcast where two soundtracks in film, TV, games and other medium are pitted against each other. Sonic host Ella Koba, and with me today is my co-host and orchestral classical trained expert Tristan Kane. Welcome everyone. This is our second episode, okay, second match, and we're really excited to be discussing our two contenders for this particular episode, since they are both two different sides of the same coin. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's introduce them. Danny Elfman's Batman 1989. And the Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, Dark Knight. Now, both these films and scores actually push the envelope on how to make a comic book movie and the way in which the score and the characters are represented. And in the end, both of these scores created an iconic and thought-provoking interpretation of the one and only Batman. certainly did. So there is a real sense of duality that I feel that we'll be touching upon when we're going to be discussing about these scores. You can say that one score leaps out and demands our focus because it's just so over the top and it characterises each scene, whilst the other's a little bit more subdued and more brewing. And let's say the actors and the action and dialogue take the lead. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. I think we can probably safely say that the Danny Elfman one is is the one you're saying is, is bombastic and over the top and you... you can't mistake it when it comes through whereas the the Zimmer particularly the Zimmer parts of the the Dark Knight score they get right under your skin but they just sort of sit underneath the action a lot Hmm. and sort of just permeate the film more than take charge most of the time. So what did you think when you first saw Batman 1989 and then obviously the Dark Knight what were your first impressions? Yeah even though they're, they're both Batman films and they're both stories about Batman against the Joker at the end of the day in theory quite similar they are very different styles and and, and looks of film. There is a bombastic, over-the-top quality, not just to the score, but also just to the film itself. Okay, so let's move on and talk about our round one, which is Batman. So Batman is one of the ultimate comic book characters, would would you say? In terms of what versus Superman? Yeah, well, I mean, when when you sort of think of what is a comic book character, I think Superman is definitely, you know, one of the first things you, you, you think about. And Batman is probably pretty much... If not first, second. He's... I think with Superman, he was like the ultimate good guy um, trying to encompass everything that, you know, the ideal human or the ideal person should be. Whereas Batman is meant to represent the everyday person. Yeah, definitely. You know, who has no superpowers whatsoever. And he's reliant on his gadgets, his knowledge, mm-hmm. his wealth, as I guess, in some ways. Definitely. They're two of the very sort of iconic ones. Like, obviously, nowadays, five or six superhero movies, TV shows, etc. will come out every single year. And I feel like after a while, a lot of the actual superhero characters themselves have gotten a little bit diluted. But there is something about particularly Superman and Batman where you're just like, okay, that is that is, that is a superhero. They're the famous ones. They're the ones that just easily remember as opposed to, yeah, just the 
seemingly thousands of ones that are out there these days. I completely agree, yeah. And it's probably no accident that they're, they're two of the first real superhero characters. They both date back to the 30s. Batman comes just after Superman. He first emerged as a character in, in DC Comics back in 1939. DC Comics standing for, you know? Nope. Enlighten me. Detective comics. Detective, of course. Yeah, because both Superman and Batman are at the end of the or at the beginning of the day, at least, detectives. That's true. Yeah, they do a lot of detecting and finding out clues and all that. Yeah, it's they? it's not something that you necessarily associate with them all the time, but yeah, that's kind of their their core as characters, the detectives and things. Obviously, since 1939, we've had many, many versions and iterations of Batman. We've had the, the early black and white sort of pre-roll film ones. We've had the very campy, na 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 na, sixties one, which is borderline still the most iconic of all, of all the Batman ones. But significantly, in the 1980s, a series of quite dark comic books slash graphic novels of Batman came out from Alan Moore, Brian Bolland and Frank Miller. It's sort of the year one and Dark Knight and Killing Joke graphic novels and they created this really dark Batman character and that Batman is what has influenced both of these films quite heavily. Obviously those comic books came out right before the 1989 Batman. It was very much in there in that thing and uh, The Dark Knight is actually very closely related to those comic books in particular Batman Begins very much is the year one I think Frank Miller graphic novel and then Dark Knight carries on directly from that so that's obviously our little potted history of Batman I, I should mention to audiences that Ella is sitting across from me wearing a Batman t-shirt <laughs> damn right <laughs> so what would you say is sort of like some of the, the, the key facts of Batman so I would say that you know he's the fact that he's an orphan is, is a big part of his character the fact that he's very rich particularly when he's Bruce Wayne he's, he's something of a playboy and he lives in this massive mansion the fact that his wealth allows him to actually you know create more gadgets and be you know quite innovative creates new technologies like the Batmobile. And uh, he's sort of, he's the sort of all crime fighting detective. There's always a lot of sort of almost like film noir sort of quality to him sort of because he's, you know, the, the walking through dark streets solving crimes, that kind of thing. But then as well as being the sort of intelligent, uh, thoughtful, mindful detective, he's also an action hero who gets into fist fights with people and comes swooping out of the skies and... So what we're sort of hinting at there is that there's a lot of contradictions. Dualities. Yeah, where, you know, he's a noble playboy, a thoughtful action hero. Things that don't necessarily naturally go together that almost seem like they should be opposites. So this is the, the main theme from the 1989 Batman.
So tell us about the Elfman representation of Batman. It's definitely heroic, majestic and memorable. Those are the three things that I find, you know, sticks to my mind when I listen to the theme. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's also quite dark in addition to those three. It's dark, but it's also quite light as well. I find the use of the four-note minor key ascent and two-note major key descent is very simplistic, but it addresses the duality of Bruce Wayne's character. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's very true. It is, without wanting to get too technical, it is actually quite interesting that the, the dark is the is the rising part of the tone and the light is the descending part of the tone, which again is sort of almost backwards, sort of hints to that, that contradiction. There's definitely two parts of this. There's the, the slow da-da-da-da-da-da, and then it goes into the, the fast, bombastic... March. March part, which I didn't realise until quite recently, actually, that the notes of the march are the same as the, the theme before it. Those two between them are very much your, uh, again, your sort of, that's your detective versus superhero thing I guess of the that slow theme is the broody film noir detective type but then that that fast march is very much the action hero driving along the fast car going in to save the day it's you know it's very much the knight in in this case very dark shining armor and I like how particularly in that opening theme the theme itself it just keeps moving around and shifting and coming from different directions which is very very sort of batman like and sort of like sort of lurks around in the shadows and will just turn up in the middle of nowhere all right, so we should probably move on to Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And my understanding is that James Newton Howard didn't have much to do with the Batman theme in particular. I'm pretty sure I've heard him say as much himself. Mm, I uh, think he was more concentrating on the Harvey Dent yes, character. Yeah, I th- yeah. My, my understanding of the, yeah, the way the division goes is they more or less divided characters between them and that Zimmer is pretty much the man behind both the Joker and Batman and that James Newton Howard did Harvey Dent and that some of the other lusher orchestrations around the edges. So let's start off by playing the Zimmer Dark Knight theme from the track I'm Not a Hero. I find it interesting because that is actually quite like the Batman theme. That cello motif is quite similar to the Danny Elfman 
Batman theme. It's very brooding. It has a similar sort of a structure, the, the rise and fall and, and all those sorts of things. That almost is the sort of hint back to the soundscape that we've come to accept of Batman because I think the Dark Knight and Batman Begins and stuff, they're not long enough after the 89 and 90s Batman films that that sound had been forgotten yet. And I think that kind of helps carry it through, even though the actual Batman theme, which we're talking about here, is those two French horn notes that... Which, again, incidentally, is more or less the core notes of the Elfman theme as well. The, the, the Elfman theme, in the way it rises up that main, minor, that minor score, same notes. It's funny, like, do you think that Hans Zimmer decided, okay, well, Danny Elfman's is a four-note theme. Well, I'm going to reduce it to two notes and see if I can get away with it. See if I can be as impactful as possible. Almost, yeah. You do wonder that. I mean, Elfman's is not necessarily strictly a six-note theme or four. It is four, five, and six, depending on on what he's using at any given moment in time. And, yeah, Zimmer's is a two-note motif, very much a Wagnerian motif kind of thing, in that it is always in those same that same instrument is always in those French horns. It is so simple and it's so repetitive that when you hear it every time, even though you might not remember it after the film because it's not a huge thing, it is very clear what it is when you're, when you're hearing it. That's almost one of its strengths in this film as well, is that so it's very much already beginning to sound like we're arguing for our potential favourites here. <laughs> but so with, with Elfman's Batman theme, when it comes in, it's pretty much announcing I am a theme you know it's there, you know it's happening. Whereas one of the really cool things about the, the Batman theme is you almost don't know it's there until it already is. Like, because the, that, the opening note often crescendos in out of quite busy, chaotic, sort of pulsing strings like we, we just heard, that you don't really know that the theme has happened until you hear the second note. And then you're like, oh, but we're already at the end, we're already there, which is kind of like how Batman arrives. Of, of you're there, the chaos is happening, you think something might be, and then all of a sudden Batman is there. Definitely different in terms of memorability, probably not so much. In terms of which theme you can repeat or hum to, obviously mm. I find hum that... Hum walking out of cinema. Yeah, because um, I think we were talking about earlier, you know, I asked you, you know, can you hum the, the Hans Zimmer one? And yeah. you did, and then I was thinking... Well, that's just two notes. It yeah, doesn't really it it's not really representative for anything particular. So I think the extra notes that Danny Elfman represents, it's it's just it's more symbolic for me. It is yeah, for sure. I resonate with that Batman theme much more than a Hans Zimmer one because I think Hans Zimmer one is more as an underscore. I almost when I watch the Dark Knight or all the other Batman films, it's it doesn't punch out, it doesn't it, to me it doesn't elevate him mm. as much. Because it's so underscored, it's so underneath that, as you say, you're, you know, it, it creeps up to the point where it's almost it's easy to miss. So I, I think, yeah, we're now to the point where we've got to decide uh, which one we're going to uh, declare as the winner. And I think I know which one you're going to say. Uh, yes, it's going to be the Danny Elfman. It's going to be the Danny Elfman. You? In terms of if we're going to be discussing about the representation of Batman, mm. okay? We've obviously been researching this for a couple of weeks, and I have toed and froed as to which one I prefer. Just um, go with your gut. I mean, I've gone with my gut. <laughs> you know, and, you know, my instincts say that it's the Danny Elfman 89. I'm going to go with Zimmer, but it's close. Right, so our next round, we're going to be talking about the Joker. 
So who is the Joker? Now, the Joker seems to be the most recognizable and iconic fictional characters in popular culture, you know, next to the Batmans, arguably his equal, and one of the best, if not the ultimate comic book supervillain. I definitely think so. I think so. I like Batman a lot more than every other superhero. I'm not a huge superhero fan. I don't mind superheroes, I'm not necessarily against them, but I like Batman so much more than all of the other ones. And it's it's not so much about Batman himself. I mean, I think he is a particularly cool superhero in terms of his character and the, all of the stuff we just spoke about. But I think you kind of have to agree that Batman has by far the best villains. Harvey Dent's amazing. Poison Ivy, Catwoman. Exactly. Penguin, the Riddler. Even amongst that amazing cast of characters, the Joker is just... I think he basically, he ticks all the boxes of what makes the ultimate supervillain, you Mm -hmm. know, and one that you can't defeat. Mm -hmm. I think, yes, you can defeat him by killing him off, but in terms of trying to turn him over to the good side, he's like the one person that, like, there's no chance. There's no way you can try and rehabilitate him. Yeah, he's so chaotic. He's so off off the spectrum almost, that you can't then realign him because it's just, you can't realign It's that's... one way or another, he's always going to go back to his dark side. He's mm-hmm. always going to, his mind is always going to, like, snap out of it. I also think in terms of film, he's the best one for actors to get into. He's so distinctive in terms of his style and his look, and there is an intensity to him. He's such a larger-than-life character that actors can throw themselves into the Joker in a way that they can't throw themselves into most villains. Because a lot of villains, in particularly in superhero movies, are very one note. That's probably kind of the problem to a lot of villains, particularly a lot of like the Marvel movies and things like that. Of those, you know, they want to take over the world, but you know, there's not necessarily a whole lot going on under the surface. Whereas there is a a philosophy and an insanity behind the Joker, which feels more like a intense thrillery drama. It's got a, like sort of almost like a a Hannibal Lecter kind of a quality to it. The actor can really get into as we see with both in both these films, like Jack Nicholson, who is a genuinely high-end actor, can throw himself into the Joker and, and give a performance as good as his one in The Shining. And Heath, I mean, he just knocks the Joker out of the park with this one. I mean, when I first saw The Dark Knight, okay, I have to, I'm quite embarrassed to admit, I watched it at least five times in the cinema and once in the IMAX. Because of the Joker's character, because I was so enamoured, I really wanted to find out more about him. Because compared to the Batman 89, you actually see the origin Mm -hmm. of the Joker with Jack Nicholson's character, whereas The Dark Knight, you don't. So I was more curious. There's more mystery. There's more mystery, and I wanted to know more. And I was just on this high. I just wanted to see the Joker over and over again. He'd really Mm -hmm. left a mark. He he definitely does. Is that something you do often? See see a film five times, or is this a a special occasion? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, when I was little, like, literally, I used to destroy tapes, you know, particularly, like, Batman, Batman Returns, Night Before Christmas, obviously all Tim Burton, Danny Elfman Mm. collaborations. Um, We're getting a theme here. Yeah, <laughs> all the takes will destroy because it will be play, rewind, play, rewind. Okay. Well, I'm glad that uh, The Dark Knight also had the same effect. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Let's talk the about theme. Music. Here's Denny Offman's theme for The Joker, Waltz to the Death.
we hear it when he sort of first transforms into the Joker and he kills the, the mob boss by sort of shooting him sort of theatrically to this. And he's, he's definitely enjoying the moment. So we, we hear that. And then we hear it, obviously, then again at the end on the top of the cathedral when he's dancing with Vicky. And why do you think that works? I like the vault. I thought it was completely different. Danny Elfman's choice was quite an obvious one. It was, um, what's that word when you said it was? Cliche. Cliche, yeah. It was more of a cliche, you know, decision to kind of represent Joker in that way because obviously Joker's, you know, he looks like a clown, mm-hmm. you know. So, clown prince of crime. Yeah, exactly. So in what prevents, where can you find clowns in the circus, you know, and... This is probably just a, a general philosophical point, I think, which is cliche works in film music because the whole point of film music often is that you need to convey sometimes a relatively complex idea very, very quickly to an audience. And cliche and stereotype is how you do that. That's the whole point. So when Nicholson arrives and he's got the crazy smile and then he, he shoots up the mob boss, playing that sort of yeah crazy clown circus-like waltzing music it immediately gives you that sense of oh it's, this is the this is the clown this is the joker in in seconds also just in general the idea when you when you have a waltz out of place there is always something slightly funny and comic and zany about it i think there's there's something about how a a waltz has a really strong sense of itself that if you you could play that exact same waltz to death over like a waltz scene in an actual you know period drama and it would probably work as a waltz. You may not think of it as being particularly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But you put it there where Jack Nicholson with his ridiculous makeup smile is shooting up a guy. And it's, it's kind of funny and it's macabre, as you say. Mm. So we'll move on to Zimmer and Howard. Okay, so we've listened to the theme, and it's very different, shall we say, to the Danny Elfman. It's definitely not circusy. What Hans Zimmer kind of what he basically decided to use for his interpretation of the Joker was more drone-style music. So, so tell us, what what is a drone? 
So a drone is basically minimal music that emphasizes the use of sustained or repeated sounds, as well as notes and tone clusters aligned with silences. You know, it's very still and very slow building. And it's originally it originated in the 1960s and was pioneered by Lamont Young, who changed the way people defined music. Yeah? Yeah. His work was mainly collaborating with contemporary artists and incorporating sound designs. Yoko Ono was a fan, apparently. Okay. And, you know, if you want to talk about some world examples, there's the Japanese gagaku, um, imperial court music, which uses the show instrument, which is a woodwind instrument. It's really, I find it very fascinating. I think Hanzama was definitely influenced by that particular instrument. I've heard that. Here's a little example what it sounds like. It works for Joker's theme because it's very unsettling Mm. and it's definitely a unique interpretation and representation of someone who's completely bent on chaos, bent on just having one simple mission, Mm -hmm. which is just create chaos. Sort of one-track mind. Yeah, and those notes or that sort of ascension really creates that unending and sort of climax which actually it doesn't even cl- really climax no, it does doesn't, it it doesn't really it keeps going but it keeps go going anywhere. which is basically you know representing you know jokers like he just keeps on going you know there's no there's no stopping him i think it really works yeah that's really good i'm glad to explain that because to me a drone has i've only ever known a drone as being essentially just one like a pedal note like one note held forever more or less so i'm, re- I'm really glad to explain that because i was not not aware of that usage of drone to me, the, the Joker theme from, from Batman really is very much those two sounds. It's that really raw cello string sound, the rising glissando that's sort of part of the, the drone that you're talking about there. And then the, the ostinatos underneath it, the really off-kilter, really uneven uh, ostinato. So we'll just play a tiny little clip so we know what we're talking about here. So what's happening there is it, the general meter of of the piece is still normal. It's still four four, but he's he's just ordering the the accents really unusually. So you've got a couple of threes in there, some fours and some twos. So it never quite sounds like it's it's working, even though it's it's all quite even. One of the, the cool things about that is that that rhythm becomes a key part of the Joker, and occasionally it infects the Batman theme. Mm-hmm. So with Batman, you, you have the, da, da, um, the, the the two notes, but you also have, from those same notes, those same D and F, you also have this constant, like, da, 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 ostinato underneath him. But occasionally, when the Joker is really getting to Batman, that ostinato underneath gets Joker's rhythm. So it's Batman's notes with Joker's rhythm to show the influence of Batman, uh-huh. of the Joker on Batman. And how they can't live without each and other. And how they can't live without each other. It's, it's a beautiful romance. But it, and th- these are the things that I like about the way that Zimmer has constructed this score and that the simplicity of those themes means that they can bleed into and infect each other in a way that a, a more memorable and organised theme you couldn't 
do. And that's quite, that's quite cool. For sure. It's definitely a sound that is not very, it's very uncomfortable and, you know, very uneasy. And, you know, it has made a huge impact on people and forces them to react emotionally, for mm. sure. And it helps carry the film. I think it was a very good decision. You know, from Hans Zimmer to kind of give him a new modern... Modern sound. And it goes very well with the... Because there is the rawness, particularly the, the rawness of that that cello string. Where it's sort of really closely mic'd and it feels like you're right there and you're right on top of it. That goes very well with Heath Ledger's Joker whispers to people and he, he gets them to come really close to him. I mean, there's the scene with the disappearing pencil, which people probably remember if they've seen it. He's always trying to draw you in really close and that is replicated with the idea of you you hear that cello note like your ear is almost right next to it because it's so close and tight and, and real and raw and rough. You know what it used to remind me of sometimes, that sound of a mosquito? Yeah. You it know? is like you're buzzing around in your yeah, head. Yeah, and you want to swat it away, and it's just like, but it creates that tension. Like you know, when you first hear a mosquito far, far away, and you mm-hmm. just think like, oh, it's not going to come near me. But as soon as it starts getting you, it creates, it makes you feel really, creates the anxiety mm-hmm. and frustration. That's what I always kind of really reminds me yeah. of sometimes. And there's a madness of it too. It's almost like yeah. like a, a whispering in your ear and, and and stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> so which one do you think's best? On Zimmer. Yeah? Yeah, he did it perfectly. Definitely something unique and innovative. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's I think it's Zimmer as well. So let's move on to round three, which this week we're going to talk about style. Tristan, tell us. Why did you decide to talk about style for this round? One of the things that sets Batman apart from a lot of other superhero movies is that Batman has a really distinct style to him and to the world that the Batman stories all take place, in that they're all in in Gotham City, this sort of dark, crazy, wild world that is Gotham City, whereas other superheroes are often, you know, actually in something that's meant to resemble our world today, or they're in something completely wild like Asgard or or things like that. But there is a very distinct, dark style to Batman which permeates all, all of the films and particularly the music of the film. What do you think of the Elfman score works in terms of attaching to the gothic tone that Burton has used for the film? Well, for me personally, there's two tracks that really stand out and to try and represent the style of Gotham in that sort of gothic style, um, mm. which is the descent into mystery. Ah, yes. Basically the point when Vicky Vale is saved by Batman and then they're driving through in the Batmobile through the forest. Um, back to, to his cave. Back to his Batcave, yeah. It's very Hermanesque. The psycho strings kind of come in and out every now and again. And there's also an element of Goldsmith's Omen Choir as well, oh, yeah. um, leading, you know, to the triumphant funfair at the end once they go in into the Batcave. And here's the cue.
so to me, when I hear that, the only thing I hear is O Fortuna from Camino Burana, the, the Karloff Camino Burana, to, to the point that I suspect that it was the temp that they, they cut that to. Because it is, it's the sudden burst of choral music in the middle of a film that has not had choral music at all up until this point. But it is incredibly gothic. Another track that really represents the Gotham style is The Child of Remembered. And this is the scene when Bruce Wayne in his Batcave is remembering the night that his parents get killed. And mm-hmm. again, the use, the orchestration, some instrumentation is very solemn and very tragic. You know, the use of choir, you know, when it begins. And it's... Yeah, it's sort of an operatic church-type quality to it, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, in the literal sense, you know, churches usually symbolise purity... And Except in Gothic literature where they they symbolise dark, remembered histories. Which is a perfect fit. And I found that the use of silence, particularly during the gunshots, typically in films you have very elaborative music, you know, symbolising, you know, the action, the dramatics yeah. of somebody being killed. Whereas here, silence was used. And I found it very impactful during the shoots, you know, where it was not imposing and it works because it built the tension and emulated more of a shock factor to the audience um, so the audience concentrates more on the realistic sounds you know when his mother's neck has been grabbed and you know mm-hmm. the sounds of the pearls are being falling. pearls falling and then the gunshots and then the screams and it's all very silent there's there is music behind it but it's so quiet that mm-hmm. it's just this tension is being built probably the most real that the 1989 Batman gets. Mm. And also it's a great example of great sound design work as well, yeah. where it was the more focal point. And for me, I do think overall Danny Elfman was really more, he focused more on capturing the mood of Gotham as well as the character of Batman. And I found that his version, his interpretation of, me, of you know instrumentation is... He created Gotham as a sec- as a third character potentially. Yeah. Do you not think? Yeah. No. I, I, yeah. I think I definitely agree. Cool. So then let's talk about Hans Zimmer's then. So the example that I want to play is a clip from a track called "Like a Dog Chasing Cars," which is a, a reference to the Joker, and I'm fairly sure this accompanies the Joker sort of driving around the city of, of Gotham at night. So let's listen to the clip now.
So that's about as bombastic as the Dark Knight ever gets. You've got the like the strong driving strings and the the brass there, and then you've got these big sort of Wagnerian horn calls over the it's top. It's very majestic when I was just listening to it. Yeah. You know? It's the most obviously classical part of the score as well. And that everything a lot of the rest of it has been sort of little beats and ostinatos and little pulses and um, that drones dr- and drones exactly, um, but that is suddenly it's 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 almost you would never mistake it for John Williams, but it's almost John Williams esque. The big powerful theme comes sort of riding through. Well, it's driving the scene quite literally, mm. you know, because this is the scene when there's an attack on. I'm pretty sure yeah, it's a Batman in the in the Batmobile, sort of chasing through the streets of Chicago, the sort of the orange lit streets and mm-hmm. the tall buildings and this big grand music. And I think that that is the is the gothic of the of the Dark Knight. That's that's what it's expressing. Yeah, and it's a shame that as you said earlier that, you know, we don't get it all throughout the score. You know, it kind mm. of comes in primarily in just maybe one or two tracks. Mm. You know, so Yeah, there's only a couple of moments of that. And whereas, you know, with Danny Elfman it's kinda of, it's this is it's the concept is kind of there all throughout. Mm-hmm. So okay, so then in terms of Picking our winner then. I think Tim Burton's film is a more stylish film than Christopher Nolan's film, just in terms of how much the style takes over the film. And and Elfman's score likewise gets to, to really bring the dark and the gothic. So I'm I'm gonna give this one to, to Danny Elfman. I agree. Right, so on to round four. So we're gonna be discussing the action music. Particularly, we're going to be focusing on two scenes. So for Batman 89, we're going to be talking about the um, chemical factory sequence. Yes. The track is called First Confrontation. And then the Hans Zimmer one, we're going to be discussing the heist, isn't it? The bank heist. Yes, which honestly I believe to be one of the the best action sequences ever. I'm going to put that out there right now. I would even say like great start of the film. Definitely one of the great openings. When when people sort of think about you should start a film with with action right in the middle of it. Yeah, No, no one I don't think has ever done it better than than the opening to The Dark Knight. It, it just sets that film up. But I, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. You want to talk about the Axis chemical plant? So let's start the track, and here we go. Gordon and police arrive at the scene. Confronting Eckhart and taking charge. Call and response between the clarinets and horns. Jack wrecking havoc in the control room. theme as a sonic cue before the visual confrontation. Batman shoots his blade-playing gun at one of the thugs, throwing him over the rail. We have him hang and swing from side to side, screaming, put me down, whilst Gordon looks up in shock. 
Batman thing comes in again as he pursues Jack. emphasize new danger and importance to this scene as Gordon's life is in danger. A bit of Mickey Mouse here. As the theme is played out by clarinets. Cockiness of the shooting Eckhart tends to anguish when Batman deflects his bullet. Jackson danger. And there's a hint that he thinks he might be saved by Batman. And as he releases his left hand from the bar, the change in Batman's decision is highlighted by the crescendo horns. And down he goes. So you mentioned Mickey Mousing in there. Maybe we should talk about what, what you mean by that. Yeah, so Mickey Mousing is following the character's actions quite to the literal point. So if somebody is going to run out, it is literally you're going to use a sound that is going to symbolise that effect of them mm-hmm. running out. So probably yeah, something the, fast. Like, uh, like the, the person running up the stairs and the music goes do 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 Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's highlighting those... Um, little key points to the action. Mm-hmm. It's very action-based. Um, yeah, and obviously the name comes from it's very cartoony. Yeah. It, it both sounds cartoony and it's used a lot in cartoons, particularly old, old-fashioned old cartoons. So basically think of Mickey Mousing as in like all the music that was composed for the Mickey Mouse. So in, in this case, you're saying that the music is very closely related to the actions that the characters are taking on screen. Exactly. Which works for this because it's a comic book story. Exactly. And also, um, Danny Elfman, he said that that was his intention of writing a score that was that could actually be played um, to like a 1920s sort of film that is very mm. classical and quite traditional in that sense. And it's all yes. very action and dramatic. And if you know what I mean. Oh, definitely. Because you're referring to silent movies there, obviously they didn't have sound effects and things and often the music would stand in for actions. And also kind of represent all those sound design elements. So there was something that was meant to represent the water, then you would have a certain woodwind, you know. or yeah, rippling kind of sounds. Exactly. So it was very quite literal. Hmm. And that was um, Danny Elfman's intention, that he wanted this music to be very literal and put, almost paying homage to the old school style, hmm. to the silent film eras. I, I feel like he really embraced it. A lot of composers actively avoid Mickey Mousing because they feel like it's cheap or whatever. But I think, yeah, Danny Elfman, it, it's part of his style, part of his zany style and part of why he's 
so kind of memorable and cool is that he's not afraid to do a little bit of it every now and then. So apart from the Mickey Mouse thing, what, what works about the music to the scene? I think what works is that it's very colourful. Yeah, it's wild and it's, it's over the top. Yeah. It's super dark and villainous. It, 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 it's cartoon villain. It's pantomime villain. It's like camp. matinee villain. It's a bit camp. It's it's everything that, that Batman has ever sort of really embraced, I think, in terms of all of that. It's Yeah, it's over the top. It's cool. It's a fun cops and robbers kind of story at this point. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's why it works. That's why a lot of Danny Elfman music works in general is there's always a fun twinkle to it. We'll move on to the heist in the Dark Knight. One of the cute features about this track is that the music actually starts before the movie does. The music, the music begins over the production uh, logos. There's this, there'll be the sudden burst that you're going to hear right at the start. Hans likes to sort of talk to his directors and get in before the movie does so he can get the first word in and start to establish the feel of, of what the movie's going to be in. So, so listen out for that off the start. First thing we actually see is a glass office building, a window shatters and this nervous fidgety ostinato kicks in. Then the string note comes in again. This time the camera is zooming in on a clown mask. Everything about this shot and the music tells you that this is important. It's how the movie tells you which of the villains is going to be the Joker. He gets into a van. The characters we saw at the beginning breaking out of a window are now ziplining across the road and onto the roof of the bank. Music cuts quieter as we go back into the van, where the villains are talking about the Joker, not realising that he's sitting in the back of the car. And to be honest, the first time an audience watches this, we're not 100% sure as to where the Joker is, but we probably should know. Now they run into the bank. The music doesn't really do much to acknowledge it, and it lets the sound effects of them running into the bank take over because they fire shots into the air and start shouting and all sorts of things. Now the music kicks off as one of the henchmen starts running. 
we get a look at an employee or possibly manager of the bank who's watching the robbery from a glass office in the middle of the main floor. The music gets down when the guy who was running arrives at the vault safe and settles into crack it. It's matching the energy of the people on screen. Now the employee pulls a shotgun from under his desk and shoots one of the robbers. This causes the Joker to scurry to safety and the music lifts to match it. Yeah, so why do you think this works then, musically? I think it's a really good idea to start the movie both with the Joker and with the Joker's music because it's the most distinctive part of this film. And it's also it's the opposite of the Batman theme. Mm -hmm. The Batman theme is quite bombastic and it's all horns and stuff, but the Joker is gritty and real and raw and edgy and it's not in any way at all cartoony. It's more think, rock and roll and, like, punk. I think that's really important for this film because, obviously, it's a, it, it's a superhero movie. People know it's Batman. They, they, they've seen the poster as they've walked in. But it immediately announces with this music and with this very... It's genuinely a heist movie scene, not a cartoon movie scene. It, it announces this is not a cartoon superhero movie. It this is, is serious. Yeah, this, this is... is a serious movie that just happens to be about Batman. I think that's that's probably the most important thing that this this music and this scene achieves right off the start. It kind of subverts your expectations, doesn't it? It does. It does definitely because you've you've come in expecting loud a hero film, like a superhero film. Yeah, superhero kind of big, loud, bombastic characters and stuff. And it's it's no, we are we are serious. Uh, and the thing that I like about this scene and the music is is a part of it. Is that this is a, a reason why I say that this is one of the best action scenes I've ever seen. Is this is a really good example. When you, when you watch action movies and you feel like they leave you a bit cold, come back and watch this particular scene and how it does storytelling through action and how even though we don't actually see the Joker until about six minutes into this film and at the end of this sequence, the way it tells the story of who the Joker is and how the Joker operates just through how this essentially relatively normal heist happens. The way that... The robbers don't know who the Joker is and there's all these rumours about who the Joker is and they all seem to have been told, oh, no, you, so you do this and then you shoot that guy and then you'll get a bigger cut and then you go off and it turns out that the next person they meet has been told to shoot them and the chaos of all of that and then... But the cunningness of the Joker's sort of plan, you know, exactly. how he thought so far ahead, you know. Exactly, and how he engineers this thing that is going to end up with him driving a bus away from a bank with all of the money, having employed five people to help him do it and, and the way that he thinks on his feet and the way he reacts the amount that you know about the joker at the end of that six minute thing where you only saw his face at the end is more than you know about a lot of villains at the end of entire movies and i it's a shame that danny elfman didn't make you know the the joker theme in the, in the 1989 is not really it's not made good use of mm. you know it's not doesn't really appear there there's no hint of it whatsoever no, it doesn't appear in that scene at all does it no it's, there's no even hint of it though is there no no, there isn't. All you get is that sort of jagged piano melody and it's also sort of the strings, which is probably in the in the context of that film more the uh, theme of his henchmen than, than it is of him. I, you know, you can explain that away, obviously, by he's not the Joker yet. He's not the Joker until he falls into that vat of acid at the end and then he has the surgery and, and whatever. But there's also no sense of this is the moment that will make him the Joker. There's no use of music developing in there. 
So then in that sense, for me, I would probably go for Hans Zimmer's action scene. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely, that'd be definitely right. And pretty much all of the music that Hans Zimmer and to a lesser extent James Newton Howard wrote for The Dark Knight is action music. So it's probably quite fitting that they have the best action music. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Cool. So let's move on to our final round, which is... Round five, lasting legacy and audience reaction. Right, so let's discuss about the legacy of Danny Elfman's score. Yes. So because of Tim Burton's vision of Batman, we have to thank him for the, re- the, the resurrection of the superhero concept on film. Because of the success of Batman, it kind of steered well for almost two decades. You know, if there was no Batman 89, there wouldn't be The Dark Knight, surely. No, most definitely. Also, like, Batman was released during a time when action films were all ignored by the Oscars. So, you know, Warner Brothers made a valiant effort into getting Batman recognised during the awards time. And it did get one nomination, Best Art Direction, and it also won. Yeah. Before that, there was Superman, which won a Special Achievement Award for visual effects. Ah, yes. Kind of a weird title, isn't it? It is. That is a weird... That's a weird one. But, obviously, Batman was the first one that was actually won for Best Something. Mm. For this one, it won for Best Art Direction, which, again... You know, in terms of the gothic style that we were talking about earlier. It definitely deserves that. It's funny you mentioned that the story of superhero movies and Oscars is a, is a bit of a funny one. They are often overlooked at the Oscars. It's almost like they're seen as too cheap or frivolous maybe to, to vote for. in Or in not, in not serious. You know, what is their message? What are they trying to convey? Yeah, I mean, they've more or less got the special effects category on lockdown, like the big superhero movie area any given year will tend to get nominated there and win every now and then quite a few even get makeup i think suicide squad despite being a terrible film quite rightly won the oscar for best makeup shame about the rest of the film though same yeah shame about the rest of it indeed and talk about the the idea of batman in 1989 being one that they they put a lot of pressure into to try and do it obviously jack nicholson's big genuine oscar type actor being in there and they made a big push there the dark knight is the other big example of an oscar based uh, superhero movie it had seven nominations including the one that heath ledger won for best supporting, supporting actor yeah. posthumously unfortunately it was also nominated for sound editing sound mixing cinematography editing art direction makeup and visual effects but again if it wasn't for 1989 batman this would have not happened or? quite possibly not and what do you think about danny elfman's sort of influence and legacy in music i don't think it's as great as you would think it is his sound is, is very unique and was big, particularly in the 80s 90s, and late, late 80s and yeah. 90s, yeah. But generally, if you were hearing the Elfman sound, it was Elfman himself doing it, particularly his work with Tim Burton. I don't know if he necessarily influenced that many other composers, although one thing from this film, which definitely did catch on in the 90s, was that jagged piano, the do 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 which appears in a lot of sort of heist and action movies in the 90s. You hear it in, in The Fugitive and, yeah, a bunch of, a bunch of other films um, from the 90s. So, so that sound caught on, but not much of the rest of it did, which is why I think we can still think of it as being zany Danny Elfman style. Whereas yeah, maybe I... if no one had copied Hans's style, we'd be thinking of this is zany Hans Zimmer's style, but in reality it's just, um, you know, Hans does it like everyone else. 
I agree that, you know, Danny Elfman's music was more prominent and had a very strong signature style in the 80s and early 90s. And I, I just wish that he didn't lose that magic and goofiness in his mm. later in his soundtracks. I know what you mean. Is it a case of, you know, becoming an older, mature, sophisticated composer, losing their edge or being far too considering of, you know, money and, you know, mm. what the, the studios want and not actually, not going against the studios and trying to be more innovative, which is obviously, I think, what Hans Zimmer manages to do very well. He kind of sticks to his guns. He does mm -hmm. what he wants. And thanks to him, yes, he has kind of introduced this new way of composing of that sort of drone, minimal, slow building style, mm. which... A lot of compo other composers have tried to emulate and completely failed. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it, like, Hansen has become a, a master of his own craft. Yeah. So his influence, he introduced the decline of melody. Danny Hoffman is all about melody. Yeah. You know, being very decorative and having a lot of colour. And Hansen is completely the opposite. Definitely. And there's, there's obviously, there's that big argument around the place of the idea that none of the Marvel movies have memorable themes and things like that. And even though Zimmer has not done many, if any, of the Marvel movies. Definitely the influence of Zimmer is on there. A lot of his well, disciples, as we say, like Hans, Ramin Djawoudi and... But Hans is more DC. Yes, Hans has been more on the DC side. So he did the Man of Steel, he did mm. Batman um, the versus Superman and Wonder Woman. So I think he's more on the DC. Whereas it's funny, Marvel doesn't have that equivalent, do they? No. And I guess in terms, if we want to discuss their legacy in terms of... How we've kind of touched upon how they influence other composers. He's more inclined to kind of teach and yes. give out his wisdom on, you know, how he creates his music and kind of creates a line of disciples, you know, like some of the um, mm. composers you mentioned, um, yeah. Ramin Dewaji yeah. and Benjamin Walsh, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. He, he composed it. Uh, it's a list of about 50 or 60 significant composers that have yeah. been through Hans's studio and sort of tutelage, as it were. Exactly. Whereas Danny Elfman seems to be a little bit of a lone wolf, mm -hmm. if you can kind of say. He, oh, definitely, yeah. And, you know, it's whenever I've watched him in interviews, he seems to be a little bit evasive about how he comes, how he composes music, you know, how he gets the idea. He kind of kind of just stems going towards, oh, he's very intuitive. You mm. know, he's very emotional and very reactive to things. But other than that, I don't know how it comes out. So it's not, there's a lack of self-awareness. He's very enigmatic, isn't he? Yeah. And so, which for a budding composer such as ours, you know, mm. we, it's nice to kind of hear a little bit more of guidance. You yeah, know, which, which I, Hans gives you. So in terms of the lasting legacy interaction, what do you think is bigger? I'm going to go for um, Danny Elfman. Yeah. The reason why is because at the end of the day, when I listen to film scores, I like to visualize the films. When mm -hmm. I was listening to the Hans Zimmer Dark Knight, I found it really hard to kind of picture the, the scenes that the track I was listening to because not only is the track listing not according to the, to the film, mm. it almost feels like I'm listening to a, like a, an album, Yeah, you know, not a film score. Whereas with Danny Elfman, it's like right from the beginning, from the Batman theme to the first confrontation, it's like I can, I, I'm going through the film, you know, yep. and I can revisit the film visually in my mind. Yeah. You know, and for me, as a listener, I find that, for me, that's more important. Hans Zimmer probably is a great composer if he's doing, like, a dance sort of performance, but he lacks melody, I yes. think. Yes, well, com definitely compared to Danny Elfman, one of the more enigmatic en melody writers of the last 20 years, for sure. And in the last, sort of, five years, I think that's what's been missing in our films, I think. It's been far too about 
minimal and far too much about you know allowing the drum music to kind of be uh, you know underlaying underneath mm. the action underneath the scores i mean underneath the actors obviously i know to kind of give more emphasis on the actors and what's happening in the scene to be main focus mm. but i don't really go away with hearing the music when i mm. when i came out of the film i i came away with the character more with you know the dark knight yeah no, I yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I. What is more important at the end of the day, you know, in terms of like musical legacy, you know, is it something mm. that you know you can hum? Here's a good question. Yes. Okay, if the world was ending, yes, and you had to save one of the scores, one of these two scores, in order to carry on over to the next generation mm. of humans, or you know, which one would you protect? You know, we. Uh, this is going to be a really weird answer, but I would probably protect any Elfman's, but for precisely the reason why I'm not going to award it the, the winner of this. The problem I have with Danny Elfman's score is I really love Danny Elfman as a composer, but I feel like, I mean, these these scores come at very different times in these two people's careers. I feel like this is too early for Elfman, particularly for a film this big. I mean, it's the biggest film he'd done by this point. And I feel the rough edges of Danny Elfman in this That's film. That's not his fault, though. It's probably not his fault, but like with that, we have, and we unfortunately didn't get to talk about this as, as through the rest of the episode. So I don't, I don't like introducing new information at the end of people, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. The scene around the cathedral, he basically directly quotes Bernard Herrmann. There is a slight ham-fisted way in which he brings influences in. That descent into madness is very Karloff and indeed quite Jerry Goldsmith. The cathedral scene is vertigo. The main theme is all Elfman and is all amazing. But, you know, Beautiful Dreamer is basically just a, a parlour music piece. Yeah, the it's waltz by is, Stephen, Stephen Foster, isn't it? Yeah, the, the waltz just sticks out as a waltz. It doesn't feel connected to anything else. It is a pastiche of lots of different types of music, which works for this film, but it doesn't to me feel like as cohesive a score. Later on, Elfman will write some very cohesive and amazing scores, but this is not one of them. Whereas Hans Zimmer... It is a very organised polished score. I mean, it is a good 20 years into his career as a film composer. He's far further down the line. I mean, he's he'd already done Lion King and Driving Miss Daisy, for goodness Gladiator sake. Gladiator as well. Gladiator. He'd won Oscars before. And Pirates, of course. Let's not forget Pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean. So, like, yeah, I see. I agree that he kind of established his sound and he was kind of, or he established his knowledge, so he was, he was welcoming. He knew the, what he was doing. Yeah. But at the same time, when I first watched The Dark Knight, even as someone who had obviously been really into film music for quite some time by that point, some of those sounds, like those opening sounds, that raw string, like that was fresh and new then. It was like, oh, wow, like you can you can do that. Like this idea of the close mic string. I mean, it's been so... And the, the problem with the Hans Zimmer thing, and possibly because of all the disciples and the size of his studio and everything, is the moment that anyone in that studio comes up with something cool, it then gets overused both by his own people and by everyone else. It's so influential so quickly. Case in point, the Brahms from Inception, where he did them and they were amazingly cool, and then six months later they were overdone by everybody in every trailer ever. Mm. But just, I walked out of the, the Dark Knight and obviously, particularly as an Australian, super blown away by Heath Ledger, but the sound of that soundtrack was so new and so original and so amazing that I I can't go beyond that, unfortunately. I know, but it's funny how, like, 
you found it much more memorable. Whereas for me, I found mm. only the Joker theme much more memorable. But I do not remember the Batman theme as much or any other type of music. Like even Harvey Dent had a theme, which I can't even think of at all. Which is which is sad because that was James Newton Howard's, and he's actually quite good at writing themes. <laughs> but no, you're right. I can't remember it either. For me, I just found that Danny Elfman's was much more memorable, even with the little mistakes or you know lack of professionalism that you were referring to. Mm. Still, find well, at least he tried, you know, and he tried to create his own, you know. Fair enough. So you're voting for Elfman, and I'm voting for Zimmer. Yeah, fine. Well, then who's the winner then? Yes, which brings us to our winner, and you're not going to like this, but by by the countback, it is it is a win to the Dark Knight, six to four. Damn that man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations, Dark Knight. You know, hope you are very happy with yourself. The end of the day, it came down to his uh, superior Joker writing and action music, which, to be fair, in terms of reasons why to say the Dark Knight is better than Batman, those are probably the the two reasons, uh, the quality of the Joker theme and just the action music in general. Exactly. But again, it just shows how times have changed. You know, Mm -hmm. like the action scenes have become much more finessed and a little bit more inventive compared Mm. to like the 80s version. So So pre-CGI almost. Exactly. So, well, maybe next time. And the action scenes in Batman are not actually that great. Yeah. There's not even that many of them. Probably more about style over substance, maybe. Yeah, and I think there is a sense now of trying to get as many minutes of action into a film as humanly possible. And The Dark Knight does it, frankly, better than almost all. Mm, fair enough. Similar films. Oh, well, much to my disappointment. Maybe Danny Elfman will win another score in one of our other future rounds. So. I suspect we may talk about Danny Elfman again. Mm. I suspect also we will talk about Hans Zimmer again, if only because he's done so many films. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> but let's talk about our next episode, shall we? Yes, so, as you, as you may well have noticed, we're getting a little bit more modern with every episode, but we're going to go ultra-modern and a little bit more into your territory, a bit more electronic for our next two scores. Sicario by the late, great Johan Johansson. And Mad Max Fury Road by Junkie XL, who is also one of the disciples of Hans Zimmer. Great, my favourites. I'm yeah. looking forward to hearing them. Yeah, because they definitely make a good use of all the electronics. You know, that's my speciality. Mm-hmm. So it would be nice to kind of talk in detail about them. Thank you for joining us for this episode. You can find us on www.tricellarmusic.com as well as all the usual social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And so we would really appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know what you think, you know, if there's Mm -hmm. anything we can improve on or just generally how much you love us. It would be nice to hear us or how much you hate us. It's also good to hear. (laughs) Also good to know. Um, so we look forward to seeing you and discussing our next episode. Uh, we are off to strap a guitarist to the front of our large big rig and drive off into the sunset. <laughs>